The following discussion is about neuroophthalmology and idiopathic intracranial hypertension. Moderators are Shuan Dai from Australia, Ellen Mitchell from USA. Speakers are Patel Chalablani from USA, Paul Phillips, USA, Dan Milia from Singapore, Richard Heller from USA, and Virel Sachideva from India. Patel Chalabani uh, will talk about, uh, will discuss about idiopathic intracranial hypertension, Paul Phillips about optic nerve hypoplasia, Dan Malia about artificial intelligence in neuroophthalmology, Richard Ertel about when do I worry about nystagmus, and Dr. Sachdeva from India about optic neuritis. I would like to thank all of our speakers for the wonderful presentations um, and we're now ready for some Q&A and some discussion. Um, I would like to start off with a question with, to Dr. Patel. Um, Dr. Patel, um, what is the one take home point that you'd like our audience to have with regards to their approach to pediatric IIH? Thanks, Ellen. And all the speakers are absolutely wonderful uh, talks. Um, it's difficult to, to come up with one point, but to really say that the disease um, is not as uncommon as we thought it used to be. So to keep your suspicion high. Um, and I think it's really critical to make sure that we're not missing a secondary cause. So remember to get that venogram. Uh, if an MRV is not good enough, get a CT venogram. Uh, take a good history to make sure there's no drug uh, that's causing this um, and rule out all the other secondary causes. I think that's one of the uh, major issues we've seen here with uh, both treatment failures and relapses. Thank you. Um, we have a question for um, Dr. Milia. So the question is, is AI confirmatory test for, for optic disc edema and should we follow up with AI if human eye cannot detect edema? Would you investigate based on the AI results? That, that's a very good question. And the very simple answer is I think, no, I don't think yet the machine, I mean, we have our pride. The machines cannot beat us. Come on, no, I can, we cannot accept that. So I'm joking, uh, but however, I don't think this should be a confirmatory test. I mean, look all the wonderful discs that uh, Paul has shown us. I have not trained the system yet with all those, uh, uh, you know, this that could mimic falsely papilledema or all the images that, that Pretty has shown. Uh, you know, all the differential diagnosis. So I, I still think that the human is the one who has to make the final decision. Now, um, I, however, I think it's, a, this has been discussed in, in, in the private chat. I still think it's a wonderful method for those who are not very familiar with, with ophthalmoscopy or with optic disc swelling. I don't think this is a tool for, for neuro-ophthalmologists yet, at least. I hope I answered the question. No, that was a wonderful answer. Thank you. Uh, I have a question for you. Can you one day come up with the algorithm kind of differential between pseudopapilledema and the true disc swelling, such as distrusion? You know, right. we receive so many refers for those. Right. Yeah, th this is a great question. In fact, you are spot on. We're working on this right now, day and night. So, um, and the simple answer, unpublished answer yet, is that the visible, the visible drusen, we are reaching close to 100% uh, 
performance to discriminate the, 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 the visible reason. The problem is with the buried reason because I don't think we have yet enough data to train the system. And as any AI system, it just depends how it's fed at the beginning to be trained. So ultimately, I think we'll get there. But for the buried reason, our performance is not satisfactory yet. But it's a great question. We hope to get there someday. Thanks. So we have a question, some questions for um, Dr. Phillips. So what first question is, if you have unilateral hypoplasia, how do you decide whether you're going to patch or not? And do you use VEPs or is it a clinical decision only? And the second question for you is, um, when should we do PAC-6 testing? So the, the uh, question about unilateral, I make the decision clinically. I know that... Uh, Dr. Nishal has a lot of experience with the VEP, but I make the decision clinically based on how severe it is on exam and based on what the family is able to do. And I may start with just 30 minutes to an hour. Most times the family will say that the child just, if it's severe like the pictures I showed, the child is just not gonna function with a patch and I don't push it. But in 20 years, I've had two or three patients who have re surprisingly responded uh, to patching. So I make the decision clinically and based on their response with the recommendations. Um, as far as genetic testing for isolated optic nerve hypoplasia, I don't, I don't typically perform genetic testing if it's isolated. This, if it's associated with other syndromes, uh, with microphthalmia or phenostosis, that's a different story. But for isolated optic nerve hypoplasia, I don't do genetic testing. Okay, thanks so much, Paul. And Dr. Sachdeva, we have a question for you too. How do we know if it's labor serrated optic neuropathy or optic neuritis if the child is incidentally found to have low vision? Yeah, thank you. Thanks for the great question. So I think uh, labor hereditary optic neuropathy has to be considered in high suspicion in a patient presenting with optic neuritis. But I think to detect it, to consider it in the first uh, 10 years, I think it is quite uncommon, though it does exist. So if you are seeing a patient with, yes, coming back to the specific question that if the child is incidentally detected to have low vision and whether it was likely to be an optic neuritis, which is demyelinating in nature or versus LHON or even hereditary optic neuropathy, the question becomes more easy to answer if we look at the profile of the patient. Majority of the patients with optic neuritis due to demyelination would have had significant recovery as per the records. The, the visual fields are relatively showing less dense central scotomas as, as compared to those with labor sedentary optic neuropathy. And then we go back to the history. The patient is more likely to be adolescent male with sequential involvement and having poor recovery of the visual function despite IVMP therapy would go more in favor of LHON. If we look at the hereditary optic neuropathy patterns, we do examination of the parents. We do find something like a temporal pallor, history of consanguinity, history of diabetes mellitus, diabetes insipidus would point more towards autosomal dominant and autosomal recessive kind of hereditary optic neuropathies rather than demyelinating optic neuritis. These will be my pointers to evaluating a patient that presents quite late. And if the patient presented quite early and you are not having good recovery over the next four to six weeks, 
then my suspicion for LHN would be very high in the acute presentation. This is how I start evaluating these patients, pointing towards LHN or hereditary optic neuropathies rather than demyelinating. Fantastic. And um, th there's another question here asking you, um, do you have any tips for treatment for those with anti who are anti-MOG positive? Uh, thank you, Dr. Shwan, for that wonderful question. Uh, I think the, all of us are learning more and more about the treatment of anti-MOG uh, positive optic neuritis or MOGAD because the recurrences are quite common. But what the literature is coming up is that two important pointers about only one third of the patients will be having recurrences. So if you have treated initially and you can possibly observe, the, the trend towards giving long-term immunosuppression in the first episode is towards those patients who have a very severe presentation and have a partial recovery. But if it is a recurrent disease, we do go for treatment for with immunomodulators. And, and evidence is again showing that uh, rather than rituximab, IV, IVIG or plasmapheresis might have a better role in these patients as is coming from some recent literature in the last couple of years. These are my thoughts as of now. Thank you. Um, we have a question for Dr. Hurdle. Um, Rich, when um, a provider um, has limited access to facilities and testing and things like that, and when they see a patient with nystagmus, when do you think it's important to have, an, I guess, an urgent referral? So uh, th thanks for the question. It's good to see you guys. So uh, I'm asking, is there ever emergency nystagmus? Like, I guess that's know, a question. Yeah. yeah. When? Yeah. Is there an? Is there when? Uh, is there a alone. time when it's urgent? Uh, yes. There's emergency nystagmus, but it's associated with other neurological signs and symptoms. Right. And and so if a if a patient presented with only nystagmus and no other symptoms, then it would not be an emergency. I think one of the keys to long-standing nystagmus is the same as long-standing strabismus, and that's the subjective complaints associated with it. If there's oscillopsia, the chance that it's neurologically significant is higher than if there's no oscillopsia, especially in an older child, they'll complain of that or some blurring. But interestingly, about 20% of patients with infantile nystagmus will also experience oscillopsia, but it's at low levels of, of uh, illumination, fatigue, illness, sedation, outside the null position, uh, they'll experience some brief episodes of oscillopsia, but in general, the world remains still, whereas in acute forms, all acute forms of nystagmus associated with neurological diseases, uh, oscillopsia is present. Thank you. And I actually have another question for you, Rich. So um, what, are you, what is your advice to providers who don't have access to say electrophysiology and things like that and other forms of high level testing in their approach to their nystagmus patients? Yeah, I think the last slide does that. So if I think that I tried to summarize that question because I get it all the time in the last slide because my sense is that ophthalmologists don't deal with nystagmus. So if they see a person with nystagmus, it's like someone with an ear problem. What do I do with this problem? You know, that it's such, it's such a rare presentation to most eye care professionals that th their gut instinct is to, to go right to the, to the 
big guns in workup. And so that's why I put that last slide together. But in general, if you do a full history, a good history of a complete visual system examination without, even without electrophysiology, you can get a sense of this. The problem is that, again, in, especially in the general world, most ophthalmologists spend uh, anywhere from four to four and a half seconds per patient. And you're not going to do that. You're not going to be able to figure anything out. So it, it's really important. To, it's like anyone who does any form of neurology. It, this is when you take your surgical hat off and you, you become a, a medical doctor. And I think if you spend time with these patients, you'll get a sense of whether this is neurologically significant or not. It, it's really the amount of time that you want to spend with them. And there's some clues in the history, in the physical examination, in a good uh, neuro-ophthalmic exam that can make you feel comfortable. And that's what I put in that last slide. Thank you so much. Um, and Paul, how hard are you pushing for follow-up endocrine testing when the initial test is normal? I definitely follow them up because they're, they're uh, numerous reported cases of children who've tested normal and then subsequently found to have endocrine deficiency. So if they're, I, I monitor symptoms, I, with the help of the pediatric endocrinologist, monitor their growth and will typically do spot tests uh, once every six months, once or twice a year to the age of five. And then uh, from five on through puberty, once a year. Once they get past uh, 12, 13 years of age, they're normally discharged by the endocrinologist. At that point, we rest easy, but we follow all of them once or twice a year. Thank you. Well, if there are no questions from the audience, I have a question actually for, again, for, 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 uh, for Varanda. I know I have a couple of cases with this HMOG positive kids. Uh, it's do not respond to any fancy medication, only respond to large dose steroids. It's, uh, it's tricky. I just wonder anybody in the group might have wisdom advice. For who is this? Uh, this mag optic neuritis? What, what group yes. are you talking about? IVIG, uh, plasmapheresis, you know what's in the literature. Uh, down those things didn't work. Apparently, everything each time we give a high dose steroid, she's doing a bit better, but we can't keep her on steroid for forever. That's the problem. Yeah. And you've tried IVIG? Yes, we did. We took Yes, all the toxic stuff. Nothing works. It seems she's. We got two girls just respond to high dose steroids for some reason, but her nerve looks terrible, and uh, I'm fearful she's going to blind. So, so this must be one of those very rare, real clients, which were not. I mean, although it's it's, it's mild positive, right? Yeah. Okay. So fortunately, I have not come across a situation where they have not responded to rituximab, but uh, I have had patients who have had recurrences while on mycophenolate morphetil. I am treating a patient where, while on rituximab, one recurrence has happened and kept the patient on rituximab as well as as a therapy. So that, that has stabilized the patient. Uh, this is my experience with the dual immunomodulator in one patient, uh, but the number is very less to have such kind of patients. I think we are more fortunate with MOG 
rather than NMO to have that severe kind of recurrences. Thanks. NMO are more likely to have recurrences that are not responding to uh, rituximab or IVIG. Okay, so as we wrap up, I would like to ask each of our speakers, starting with um, Dr. Patel and then working our way down the list, what advice would you give your younger self? Your, your newly, you know, graduated from fellowship, you know, ophthalmology self. What, what advice would you, would, you, would, you, would you give your younger self? Good one, Ellen. Um, I would probably look harder for the pseudopapilidema and not panic as much. Um, you know, I, I would say don't panic. Um, I think when that nerve looks like that, we tend to get um, very worried um, and it, it, it doesn't have to be papilledema each time you see it. So I would say look harder. Okay. What about you, Paul? I, I would say in reference, especially to my talk, really you get to know your neuroradiologists, get to know your colleagues because one of the things I was asked about follow-up for endocrine dysfunction and some of my colleagues would just refer to the pediatrician. They would say the avatinger of hypoplasia and, um, and uh, or they would find say, they would get a radiology report that said it was normal when in fact the pituitary was not normal. So I think the a close relationship with a neuroradiologist, someone you personally know and can trust as well as other people you work with. I have a pediatric endocrinologist, again, that I know and can trust. So I think it's important you know who your colleagues are. You don't just refer it and assume the other person is uh, going to uh, necessarily handle it the right way. Get people you can trust. Thanks, Paul. Dan? Thank you. As in reference to my talk, as much as I'm very convinced that what we're doing is a form of art this sort of medicine. However, I think that education in artificial intelligence becomes absolutely crucial. So my younger me, I would probably tell him, you know, get more educated about AI because we'll have to face this wave, all the telemedicine, all this new COVID era, uh, artificial intelligence is going to be part of our reality every day. And this would be a wonderful tool also to select those cases that really, uh, make human expertise necessary. So I don't think that ophthalmologists, uh, the, the machines will replace ophthalmologists, but I think that ophthalmologists who know something about AI will replace those who don't know anything about it. Thank you. Thank you. Verenda? Yeah, thanks, Ellen. Uh, well, for my talk, I think I would like to give the message that chase harder the patient with optic neuritis is no longer just a optic neuritis. It's just a syndrome and we need to establish the underlying systemic diagnosis. So with that message, I chase the patient for the complete workup. And then majority of the times we are fortunate enough to give the patient the best possible outcome that is possible. And Rich. Ellen, this is why I miss you. This is a very deep question, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think I would tell myself, try and be the best person that you could be so that your relationships mature quicker than you, especially with the parents and families. I, I would try and make myself a better person. 
because the medical knowledge and the skill set and the investigations would probably have happened naturally. Thanks, guys. Awesome. Well, I would like to thank everyone um, for being part of this. Thank you for all of our participants. Um, thank you to all of our speakers and um, thank you to WSPOS for giving us this platform to be able to you know, collaborate and share what we've learned um, so far. So thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Stay, yeah. stay safe, guys. We see face-to-face, -face, hopefully, very yes. soon. Yes. Yes. Sounds good. After this wonderful discussion about neuro-ophthalmology and idiopathic intracranial hypertension, let's see if we can take home some good messages. About uh, uh, patel chaloblami and uh, um, idiopathic intracranial hypertension, uh, we can say that uh, this is not uncommon as we think, and this is very important to avoid, to miss other causes, secondary causes of uh, intracranial hypertension, because this can create relapse and also treatment failure. About denmalia and uh, the importance of the uh, AI in neuro-ophthalmology, uh, it is important to remember that human needs to make the final decision and that uh, AI mm, uh, will be you know, very important for not neuro-ophthalmologists more than neuro-ophthalmologists. Uh, uh, about uh, the um, uh, Paul Phillips and the optic nerve uh, hypoplasia, um, he says that the, uh, if we, the final decision, if patch or not the patients in case of unilateral optic nerve hypoplasia uh, is based clinically more than uh, on VEP. And uh, if the optic nerve hypoplasia is isolated, it does not prescribe any uh, uh, genetic uh, testing. Uh, another important point uh, comes from uh, Dr. Sadiva uh, about uh, uh, um, the, uh, the possibility to differentiate optic neuropathy and uh, optic neuritis in a child that comes to you uh, with uh, incidentally uh, low vision and uh, looks like it is important uh, the profile of the patient and the visual feed, uh, possibility of recovery and the examination of, of siblings. And uh, an important question uh, is um, uh, the question that uh, has made to Dr. Ertel. So, you know, when do I worry about miscalculation? This is, you know, this is a difficult question. And uh, what we can take home that is that we have to take care of patients. We have to spend time on patient and this is very difficult and if we spend time on patient maybe most of the time we can understand uh, if the nystagmus is neurological or not but uh, if we ask Dr. Elter if there is uh, if the nystagmus is an emergency nystagmus uh, you know he says that if there are no other neurological symptoms uh, um, if there is no uh, oscillopsia uh, you know, there is not a, an emergence nystagmus. Even if we know that 20% of infantile nystagmus syndrome has oscillopsia, but this kind of oscillopsia is just in a, a specific situation like low uh, illumination. So in other case, oscillopsia needs to be, to be investigated quickly. Thank you.